Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's just uh, bring in uh, Stephen Dennis, who is uh, our Bloomberg Senate reporter, and he has been following the confirmation hearings that are being held uh, in Washington today. We know that Rex Tillerson, former chief executive of ExxonMobil, a tap to be uh, the next secretary of state. Uh, Stephen Dennis, so anything stand out to you in the, in the questioning, or is it pretty much standard uh, Democrats going after Rex Tillerson and his ties and his business experience in Russia and the Republicans uh, supporting Rex Tillerson? Actually, I think it's pretty bipartisan. The, uh, the tough questioning uh, senators like Marco Rubio are going after Tillerson very hard on his ties to Putin and also on Putin's record of having uh, of his dissidents disappearing and getting murdered, on the uh, death of civilians in Aleppo, which Rubio charges the, the, Russian, uh, the Russians with perpetrating crimes against Aleppo civilians. And uh, so it, it's been very tough on Tillerson, I think, except for Tillerson has sort of said, uh, sort of deflected everything and basically said that uh, he, he needs to know more information and needs to know classified information, which he won't have until he's confirmed, and then he'll give advice. Um, so I, I think Tillerson is basically uh, hopes that he can get through on that sort of basis of just sort of trying to deflect as much as he can. And, uh, and it's going to be a real question now for people like Rubio, McCain, and Lindsey Graham, whether they're going to ultimately vote for Tillerson. If uh, he loses though, that, that trio, he will not be, he, there's a big chance he will not be confirmed. He'd need to get some Democratic support. Um, so this might be the most interesting nominee as far as whether this nominee can get confirmed. Ultimately, everybody expects that he will. But, you know, uh, he's got to he's got to make these Republicans uh, hawks on Russia happy. And uh, there's certainly been more and more about Russia, and we're, we're certainly going to hear a lot about, uh, from Trump uh, about whether he has ties to Russia. He keeps denying that on Twitter. You know, I expect he'll probably deny it in, uh, with questions when questions are asked about uh, this leaked report that came out yesterday, and uh, also about his own personal finances. He still hasn't really detailed everything that he owns and also how uh, all of his loans. I wonder also, if they'll ask about whether he will re- uh, release his tax returns. I, I would I would expect something along those lines and also how he ha- will extricate himself from his businesses. Indeed. You know, he, he promised a, a press conference in December on this very topic. Well, yeah, it and still talking, hasn't ta- happened. Talking about that, why is he holding a press conference now at the same time as a hearing for one of his uh, cabinet nominees? Well, you know, I, I I think now is probably as good a time as any. You know, I mean, when he was going to have it, uh, you know, you want to do it in the middle of the week, <laughs> get maximum attention. And, uh, you know, it, to the extent that Tillerson is the one pick who may be in the most danger, um, along with possibly the Treasury Secretary pick, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, um, and maybe a few others, uh, you might you might as well have your press conference, have the – the big bully pulpit um, to try and uh, bluster things away. 
Is there any evidence that any of the nominees uh, feel that they are going to be unfairly treated as part of the uh, hearings? Because this is not something that is brand new to Washington. And many of the people, uh, at least as far as the senators are concerned, but for many of the nominees, this is really their first interaction uh, with uh, the way Washington works. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple things that are different about this cabinet. You know, it's the richest cabinet by far. You have billionaires in this cabinet. Just deal, dealing with the paperwork when you're a billionaire uh, is, is uh, an order of magnitude different than if you're just, uh, you know, Joe Q citizen. So people like Wilbur Ross and Betsy DeVos, uh, who who are very wealthy and are in this cabinet, you know, their paperwork is taking a while. Um, but also these are people, by and large, who've never been in government before. So uh, being in a hearing is, is a new experience. Now, Rex Tillerson's testified before Congress before as Exxon CEO. Uh, Jeff Sessions, who was at his first uh, very marathon hearing yesterday, is certainly experienced as a... Before senator. the Judiciary Committee, for Attorney General. Right. And, and, and so Sessions sort of kind of anticipated where the questions were going and kind of knew how to dance around most of the questions. Uh, this will be an interesting thing to see uh, whether Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary pick, when he has his... Uh, hearing in the future, um, but, uh, and some of these other picks who who have not really been before Congress, they're, they're really going to be under the gun, and the Democrats are really going to go after them because they want to show that the populist Trump is not how Trump is governing. He's picking uh, plutocrats in their eyes who don't really have the interests of working people at heart, and you're, you're going to see them go. They're already going very hard after Mr. Poster, the. Uh, well, Elaine, Ch- I just want to mention uh, Elaine, uh, Elaine Chow, uh, who's the nominee for Secretary of Transportation, is the only Trump appointee who has previously worked at the cabinet level. Well, Steve, you know, I wanted yeah. just to, to break in, I mean, about the press conference that we're going to be watching. I wanted to understand kind of the process of how it usually goes down. I mean, how long should president-elect or, or does a president-elect usually speak for? And then how much time is usually allotted to questions? You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see this go on a little bit longer since there hasn't been a press conference in an unprecedented period of time since the election. Uh, and there are, frankly, so many questions out there. But it really depends on Trump. You know, he, he can uh, bluster at the beginning for a few minutes and then open it up to questions. Uh, typically, you get six, eight, ten questions at a at a scheduled press conference like this with, with President Obama. Uh, Trump could go longer than that or not. And the other thing is that the reporters, you know, keep in mind these reporters have have not had access to Trump by and large. They might try to ask three and four part questions because there are so many unanswered questions. You know, he he tweets uh, uh, little details and and, uh, never really interacts with the press in a meaningful three or four part way. This is the first real opportunity beyond uh, uh, the few interviews that he's done uh, with uh, with sort of an adversarial press corps. So this is going to be very interesting to watch how he interacts, whether he tries to be more gregarious or combative. And, and after yesterday, uh, and the tweets we're seeing in all caps this morning, decrying fake news and dismissing this report as total fiction, 
I expect he'll probably be very competitive and very critical of the press for not treating him fairly. Stephen Dennis is our Bloomberg uh, Senate reporter, and uh, he's with us. You know, Stephen, I was just looking at the schedule of hearings. You're going to be kind of busy. 9.30 tomorrow uh, morning in Washington. Uh, James Mattis, uh, the nominee for Secretary of Defense, he'll be testifying before the uh, or inve- He'll be questioned uh, by the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, then you have uh, Ben Carson. I believe he'll be before the Senate uh, Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. That's at 10 a.m. Yeah, I think Mattis is probably a slam dunk. Uh, he's a favorite of John McCain, who's no friend of Trump most days. Um, but, you know, that could be interesting if Mattis uh, rebuke, has a different position than Trump on ISIS on torture on a number of things. Uh, so that's something to watch for. You know, Ben Carson, that could be a very entertaining hearing. He's a guy who previously said he doesn't have much experience in government and had a, there was a real question on whether he wanted to even be in the administration. And so I think the, the Democrats are going to try and test whether he really has the knowledge right. to, to handle that, that uh, department. And uh, you know, Wilbur Ross also, he's uh, up uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, tomorrow uh, as well in Washington. He's before the Commerce, Science, and Transportation uh, uh, Committee. Yeah, now, uh, Ross is sort of interesting, uh, obviously uh, well-known on Wall Street, uh, billionaire. Um, I, I think the, the real question with him is how he's going to handle conflicts of interest, um, and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, that there's no real expectation that his, his nominee is, nomination is going to be in trouble. And, you know, part of the thinking, I think, is, you know, you don't really want to get a billionaire mad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> so uh, so that, that'll be uh, somewhat interesting for, you know, people who watch Wall Street to see how he handles, how, handles himself. But I, I think that'll probably be pretty standard fare. Stephen, have you heard about uh, Republican and, frankly, or Democratic senators getting together before these hearings and trying to come up with a game plan? Because it does feel like uh, there has been some... I don't know, conflict, internecine conflict, certainly uh, between some Republicans. No, absolutely. I think the the Republicans and the Democrats sort of uh, treat these things, uh, by and large, as teams, and they sort of dole out who's going to ask which line of questioning, who's going to, you know, uh, with Jeff Sessions, who's going to defend him on X and who's going to defend him on Y. (laughs) There, There wasn't a whole lot of Republicans really wanting to go after Jeff Sessions, and the Democrats... You know, went after him a little bit, but they didn't go after him as hard as they potentially could have. You know, he's a he's a colleague. He's going to win confirmation. You're going to have to deal with him as attorney general. So uh, there, they didn't really go that hard at uh, the allegations of racism as they could have um, in his past. And uh, so that we're going to see more of that today. I mean, the unprecedented uh, spectacle of Cory Booker going after. Um, Jeff Sessions, a fellow senator, that's basically unheard of, and uh, could be something that sets up Cory Booker to potentially run, help him run for president four years from now. Um, you know, he's one of the rising stars in the uh, on the Democratic side, and they're looking, you know, the, the party space is looking for fighters right now, and they see him as one. Well, I just want to mention that uh, I mentioned Wilbur Ross. He's not going to be uh, uh, at the hearing tomorrow. It'll be uh, January the 18th. And uh, well, yeah. Stephen Dennis, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen Dennis Bloomberg, Senate reporter.
It is the big debate. It is the debate that is keeping up people at night and is keeping bond kings uh, going at each other with uh, numbers. I want to get a number from Mike Matarasso, Senior Vice President and Co-Chair of Franklin Templeton's Fixed Income Policy Committee. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Mike, do you think that there is a certain threshold, a certain number for uh, U.S. 10-year yields to climb above at which we can say goodbye to the 35-year bond bull market? Um, I, well, I, is, is there a number? I, I don't know if there's specifically a number, but uh, I'm, we're of the opinion that we, we could see uh, yields uh, move as high as 3% this year, probably more towards the end of the year. But that not, wouldn't necessarily mean that, uh, that the, bull, the bull bond market has, uh, has ended. I think that there are a lot of uh, demographic trends globally that are in place that um, will keep uh, uh, global growth as well as uh, inflation under control over the int- intermediate to possibly even longer than that. That's a, that's an important point. So in other words, even if the if the yields on ten year Treasuries do, does climb uh, do climb above three percent, there still could be uh, potentially a plateauing from there. In your view, I think. I think so. I, I, I think that uh, there that uh, higher interest rates at some point uh, will uh, will choke off uh, uh, economic growth and uh, slow slow U.S. the U.S. economy down as well as other economies, and uh, with that, uh, not see inflation rise and um, and uh, interest rates rise as well. Mike, could you comment on municipal bonds? Because I was reading a story today about how corporate tax cuts could actually reduce demand for municipal bonds from banks and insurance companies because lower rates make municipals less attractive compared with taxable investments. How does that work out? Yeah, well, I think it's more a matter of, of uh, depending upon how the tax code um ends up, uh, but it will make uh, corporate bonds and tre- even treasuries more attractive, especially if you go with the Republican uh, proposal, which I think is a 16.5% tax by, uh, paid by individuals. Um, so the, uh, so but I don't think it has an impact per se on municipal rates, but it gives, provides more competition uh, for municipal bonds. Having said that, I think it's important to realize that a 10-year uh, AA municipal bond right now has a yield of about 115% higher than the 10-year Treasury. So it, it has a spread over Treasuries to begin with. So I think that it will provide more competition, but not necessarily be a peril for the municipal bond market. Mike, you know, one question that I have, given your prediction that uh, 10-year Treasury yields will climb above 3% this year, I have to wonder no, what... I'm sorry, uh, prob- approach 3%, not Approach 3%. Okay. Approach 3% this year. What does that mean for uh, corporate bonds? I know that we've seen the fastest pace of issuance of investment-grade bonds to start the year, uh, and meanwhile, yields on junk bonds have climbed to the lowest since 2014, yep. leaving a pretty small cushion of extra spread to sort of absorb that kind of increase. Yeah, that's sort of the uh, the quandary that uh, fixed income investors are in right now. I think that with uh, a lot of the proposals uh, that of the Republicans and Trump administration, if if, uh, if they're passed, I think it extends the business cycle, uh, which is good for uh, for corporations. Uh, at the same time, though, a lot of the uh, a lot of that positive news and potentially, I think it's important. Not necessary. It's not necessarily going to be passed, but a lot of it is already reflected uh, in, uh, in in yields on corporate. 
corporate investment grade corporate bonds as as well as high yield so we are we're positive on credit less positive on relative value right now Wait, what but does that mean would, so in other words what, what does that mean in terms of a trade oh sure so what it means is that uh, given one would say, most would say that we are in the latter stages of the business cycle fiscal policy that will be passed to the extent that it's, pa- it's passed later on this year will probably extend the business cycle. That's positive for corporate credit, that, when, that the, the prospects of a recession are further off. At the same time, though, spreads have come in on investment-grade corporate bonds, probably about 30, 30 basis points over the last few months, and even more so on high yield. So their spread to treasuries, the risk premium, has shrunk. Should there be any disappointments where risk premiums rise on these on these sectors of the markets, we would look at look at that as an opportunity to buy because we feel the business cycle will be longer. But current levels were just moderately we find corporate bonds and high yield just moderately attractive. Just moderately attractive for high yield, because I note yeah. that uh, the inflows into uh, ETFs, exchange-traded uh, funds, particularly for a high-yield uh, debt, uh, added about a billion and a quarter. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, a, a tremendous, a, a tremendous inflow, and it's a very, and it's a very efficient way of getting exposure to the high-yield market. iShares uh, seven to ten-year Treasury bond ETF had the biggest outflows. Uh, is this an indication of what we can expect if uh, indeed we get some kind of fiscal spending bill passed by the yeah. Congress? Well, uh, it, typically, it's interest rates are rising because business prospects uh, are getting better. And that's good for corporate credit, and that's the reason why individuals are buying corporate bonds, because they feel comfortable with the credit quality. And in that type of environment of rising treasury rates, corporate bond yields are going to rise, but not as much as treasury yields will rise. So Mike, it gives you some, uh, some protection to the downside. Mike, what's your greatest conviction uh, call on the markets uh, this year? I mean, do you have any sort of contrarian bets that you're making on either a recovery or a uh, big loss? Yeah, I would say probably the, more in the, in the uh, near term, first half of the year. I think that we could see a, a bit of a disappointment in growth. Uh, given that interest rates have risen, that oil prices have risen, uh, the dollar has risen, and I think all of these are are headwinds uh, to the U.S. economy and the global economy. We've had a global uh, manufacturing rebound in the second half of this year, and that probably will taper off in the first half of next of, the, of of this year, last year's rebound. Uh, and I think that we may be see a little bit of disappointment instead of. I think in the near term, uh, Treasury yields can, can rise uh, probably from maybe up to around the two and three quarter area. Uh, but I think that we could see a, a decline in yields uh, in the first half of the year based on growth disappointment, only then to see in the second half of the year a rebound as more, as more of the fiscal policy uh, is discussed and hopefully passed, which will have a positive effect on 2018 growth. So low, possibly lower yields in the first half of the year rather than higher yields. I think that's a contrarian view. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Mike Matarasso is the Senior Vice President and Co-Chair of Franklin Templeton's Fixed Income Policy Committee. Now let's turn our attention uh, to an ongoing uh, story, which has to do with a 
unsubstantiated intelligence reports involving Russia and the president-elect. And here to tell us more is Chris Strom. He is Justice Department reporter for Bloomberg News. Chris, what can you tell us about this report? And is there any veracity in it? Is it truthful at all? Well, this is a 35-page report that is just full of multiple allegations that are unsubstantiated. However, some of them appear to be rooted in reality to a degree. For example, there's there's indications in the report that the that there have been uh, questions about business dealings by uh, by Trump associates. Now we know from our reporting that the FBI uh, has already been looking into uh, uh, possible corruption uh, tied to uh, Donald Trump's ex campaign uh, chief Paul Manafort over in Ukraine. Now. There are multiple, multiple allegations in, in, in these 35 pages. There are also I – just, I just want to mention, and having looked at the, the, the documents that you're talking about, there are multiple grammatical mistakes. There are multiple repet- – there's multiple repetition. Uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like a coherent document. It just seems – Grammatical and substantive mistakes. Yes, there's been a bunch of yeah. Yeah, and and it it just seems it doesn't seem like a a document uh, that was prepared by any uh, I guess substantiated uh, organization. Where does this come from? Well, the the belief at this point is that it came from a uh, a, a former MI6 uh, intelligence agent o- over in Great Britain, and his intelligence team put it together. Um, we are still trying to verify exactly where the report came from and what in it might actually have any sense of credibility. What we do know is that there was a a, a two or three page summary that was attached to the briefing that the intelligence agencies gave uh, Donald Trump and President Obama last week. And we have not seen what is in that that very slimmed down version and questions remain whether the intelligence agencies in that in that very condensed version only presented information that seems to have uh you know some sense of credibility or some additional independent sources verifying what was in it but right. certainly the document as a whole contains all kinds of unsubstantiated uh, allegations. Right. Aside from this document, though, we've heard that the uh, that, that Russia is suspected of hacking uh, the Republican National Committee as well as the DNC, and that they're holding material that could potentially be damning for President-elect Trump, and that they could you know use as basically a bargaining chip that they have some leverage when it comes to negotiations. Is there anything in this memo that was attached to a dossier given to uh, allegedly? Given to President-elect Trump, is there anything that sort of seems like the most possible fodder for uh, leverage, or, or that the Russians could use to, to sort of uh, get President-elect Trump to do something that perhaps uh, might not be in the best? There's nothing. Of the US. There's nothing that I can say right now that that we have any indication that it is going to be something uh, something that is verified and credible that could be used to blackmail. Donald Trump. Um, I think that there's concern now uh, uh, w- between, among lawmakers in Congress that this needs to be looked at 
in in uh, in detail to find out if there is anything. But it's also important to remember that that you know Trump has sent out tweets saying that this is fake news and that there's nothing he saying that and the Russians have also denied this and the Russians have also denied this too but but it's important to remember the Russians also denied hacking as you know they denied hacking as well and I think you know the intelligence agencies have pretty forcefully come out with uh you know the uh you know backing up the idea that that the Russian government was hacking the DNC and other political groups well, I was just going to mention that in one of Donald Trump's tweets earlier, uh, he asked if these leaks, the leaks of this dossier or this document of, uh, he described dirt, meant that we are, quote, living in Nazi Germany. This says yeah. he prepares to hold his first. I mean, this this memo, you know, it, it, I mean, it's 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 a bomb that just went off last night. And we're all trying to we're all kind of scrambling now to try and figure out what it means, what might be in it that has any, you know, any any substance. So far, is there anything that sort of stood out to you? One thing? I can't say if there's anything that's jumped out to me. Um, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to identify anything in particular that uh, that you know that we don't ha- that we don't have uh, you know that we haven't been able to independently verify or back up yet. That's fair enough. I respect that. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris Strom, uh, Justice Department reporter for Bloomberg News, speaking to us from Washington D.C. Talking about how <clears throat> markets are trying to find direction ahead of the uh, ahead of the press conference by President-elect Trump, uh, James Crombie, an editor of, of Bloomberg Briefs, has been talking with economists about their predictions, regardless of what President-elect Trump may say or tweet today. Uh, James, this must be a particularly difficult time to sort of nail down uh, the top forecasters, uh, given the political uncertainty. What struck out? What was stood out to you uh, as sort of the most notable uh, idea? Well, we ranked the best forecasters in the fourth quarter for a variety of uh, U.S. indicators. And we talked to um, a lot of the top ranked forecasters. And what really stood out for us in terms of surprises were that, um, one, headline growth could be higher, potentially, although not as high anywhere near as what what Trump uh, suggested, you know, 4% when he was campaigning. Um, But a lot of people were also saying that, you know, the Trump effect, what one described as Trumpflation, may not be anywhere near as much as, as what some people were expecting and, and also not happen in the short term. So it could deliver at the end of next year, for example. Um, the other big thing, unemployment, as you mentioned earlier, will fall. We had one of our top forecasters suggesting that it could get to 4.1% by the end of next year, which is very low. Um, and um, you know that really implies that the Fed has to move uh, more quickly than probably is priced into the market right now. The other thing, inflation, um, 2% at some point this year. PCE could hit 2% by mid-year. That's the Fed's uh, key indicator. Um, Again, that means the Fed may have to move. Um, When we asked one of the forecasters what that means in terms of hikes next year, he said if you held a gun to his head, he'd say more more four than two, which is surprising. And it's certainly not priced in. Um, And the other thing that stood out, Fed transition, you know, will... Trump uh, replace the current lineup with a lot of hawks. Um, certainly, policy will change in some way there. Yeah, can you imagine somebody actually holding a gun to somebody's head and saying, you know, come on, how many Fed hikes next year? Anyway. Um, no, <laughs> I hope not. Uh, James, I just want to get your thoughts on accelerated inflation. Uh, because I was looking today and J.M. Smucker uh, talking about raising coffee prices 6%. And another note looking at the grains market, specifically soybeans and wheat. And those prices are trending higher. 
What is the outlook for inflation? Well, I think, you know, we're seeing it all over and not just in, in commodities. But, um, you know, if um, there is this big fiscal push, then that will obviously have some inflationary impact. If there is a... Um, Bad you know, for bonds, good for stocks. Possibly, but markets are moving in strange ways, as you, as you, as you probably watch at the moment. Well, I was just looking at the 10-year, for example, and the yield there is 2.38%, a little bit of a sell-off, and in the 30-year, 2.97%, and that's kind of hovering around that 3% level, which I believe uh, Jeffrey Gundlach at uh, DoubleLine and both Bill Gross at Janus, they mentioned very specific levels, I think 2.6 and 3, saying the bond bull market is over. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, James, when you talked with some of these forecasters, was there more hemming and hawing, more, I don't know what's going to happen, than you've heard in the past? Um, I think all of them, you know, they've been doing this a long time. They see Trump as a lot of noise in lots of cases. They've, um, some of them have said that they've become a bit more nimble. They've made their models smaller and easier to adjust because of the new political situation. Um, but they're, you know, they're still forecasting and they're still, you know, they need to make calls. They need to see through that noise. And Dave, you know, uh, just sort of to that point, people still need to make calls, but not necessarily right ahead of a uh, Trump press conference. It seems like, you know, you spoke about how there isn't a lot of direction that people are kind of waiting. I mean, do you have a sense from volumes or just sort of uh, certain activity of just how sort of how much traders are with bated breath right now waiting to get a sense of what direction we're going to head in? Well, just taking a quick look at uh, the first half hour or so of trading. I mean, it was pretty much in line with what we saw yesterday when you look at uh, NYSE and NASDAQ listed stocks. So, I mean, there's yeah, a certain big amount. Bo- I was just looking, Dave. Big board volume is, is down right now, right? I mean, down yeah, about 80 I mean, 85%. a touch, you yeah. know, not much. And as it, it, much as anything, you know, it becomes a matter of where we go from here. And uh, I would just note, since you're talking about inflation, that, uh, you know, we got numbers out of super value, grocery chain. Correct. And uh, their earnings came up well short of estimates and the stock's down uh, 8%. So, you know, and that's an area particularly when you talk about food that, you know, there's a concern that, you know, the the grocery chains and and everyone sort of along the line may suffer because prices are falling rather than rising within that piece of the inflation puzzle. One, it doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention because if you think about core inflation, it excludes food as well as energy. Yeah, because no one drives or takes uh, any kind of vehicle or really eats food. It's all about volatility, Pim. Clearly. Thanks very much. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. Appreciate it. Just send Dave an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net and sign up for his daily free email newsletter. Our thanks also to James Crombie. He is the editor of Bloomberg Briefs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.